Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast, where we illuminate life science career opportunities outside of academia through the experiences of those who have been there before. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. This episode is the sixth part of the Boston Biotech series, produced in collaboration with the the Professional Development and Career Office at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. In this series, we talk with alumni who work in the Boston Biotech ecosystem. If you are a Johns Hopkins student, we encourage you to join the online Boston Biotech community on the OneHop platform to connect with the podcast guests as well as other JG alumni who work in Boston. You can find the link on our website at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com or in the show notes. My name is Jenna Glatzer, and I'm joined here with my co-host, I'm Joe Barrielli, and our guest today is Dr. Paul York. Paul is currently a scientist at Moderna, specializing in next-generation sequencing approaches and assays for RNA biochemistry. Moderna, which surely needs no introduction at this point, is a pioneering mRNA technology platform company that was founded in 2010 and has since grown to become the world leader in development of mRNA therapeutics with a market cap exceeding $75 billion. Before starting at Moderna, Paul worked as a postdoctoral fellow at New England Biolabs, where he developed assays to characterize novel CRISPR-Cas9 systems with potential for commercialization. In 2017, Paul received his PhD from the Biochemistry, Cellular, and Molecular Biology program from the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, where he studied in the lab of Dr. John Lorsch at the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. Paul, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Hi, uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you today. Thanks. Can you first just uh, introduce us to your role at Moderna? We have a lot to talk about, but uh, just to get an introduction to who you are and what your current role is. Sure. Uh, so I am a scientist at Moderna. Um, I've been there about two and a half years. The bigger organization that I'm in is kind of the research arm. Uh, it's the platform research in Moderna, where you know the group that I'm in particularly studies translation and the real you know molecular biology and biochemistry of RNA translation, translational control, things like that. And it's it's a pretty academic group compared to, you know, other potential roles that one might take in an industrial setting. Just to backtrack a bit, um, we wanted to talk to you first about your PhD work um, and how you got interested in science. So we noticed, too, that your thesis work was on eukaryotic translation initiation factor. Um, So the RNA binding protein that also is a critical regulator of gene expression. Was that your first introduction to working with mRNA? Uh, mRNA, yes. RNA, no. Uh, so, so I guess maybe to just for 10 seconds to back up even more, um, I was going to go to medical school, uh, or plan to an undergrad and I, jo- and this was at Ohio state, um, in, you know, mid two thousands. And, uh, I basically joined the lab of uh, Jane Jackman, who is still at Ohio state. And, uh, she studied tRNA. And I just kind of fell in love with RNA and decided to go to medical school, but to study, to get a PhD instead, uh, rather than an MD and really focus on RNA. And, and then ultimately, I, I was open to other possibilities, but I kind of came back to RNA work. And, you know, John and I just had, you know, immediately from during my rotation, we had a really good relationship and I joined his lab and that was my first mRNA lab. And so this was when his lab was still at Hopkins? Yes. 
Yes. So, uh, the, yeah, this was in 2011. So um, we were at Hopkins the first couple of years. And then, you know, one day he called me in his office and closed the door and he never closed the door. And I was like, oh, so, 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 uh, he said, you know, we're moving to the NIH, uh, but, you know, you can still be a student. Uh, you're still a student at Hopkins, but you should come with me to the NIH. I think yeah, we can do some cool experiments together. And I was like, yeah let's do this. And so I still had my thesis committees. And by, the, by then I, at Hopkins, uh, you know, Rachel Green was, uh, James Stivers, they were on my thesis committee. And then I would come back to Hopkins every year for my thesis meeting. And by then I was done with classes. So, and I would be doing work at the age. Did you notice any real differences in the research environment at Hopkins versus NIH, even though you were, uh, essentially in, in the same lab, um, was, was there a different type of culture? Yeah, for sure. So first, you know, when you're at Hopkins, you, you're you all large, at least the way that my experience was, I mean, I'm surrounded by grad students and everyone's the first approximation, let's say 25, right? Most people at this point in their lives that, you know, that were my colleagues and peers, they didn't have a family. They didn't have any of these things, right? So it's like, hey, yeah, let's go out after, you know, after lab, let's go hang out, let's do this, this, or that. But a lot of people at Hopkins, it's a very postdoc heavy population, let's say. Uh, so many of them had families and it, it wasn't quite as easy as a connection for a graduate student, admittedly, but, you know, I made some great friends. I made some fantastic connections that I still maintain, um, but so that was the harder part. The easier part, everyone, almost everyone there already had a PhD. And so the mentorship was basically anyone who was willing to talk to you, right? And um, the resources that we were able to obtain through being at such a vast institute were incredible. Um, and then we got particularly lucky because we had the super group, as we called it, or some, you know, one of the other nerdy names we came up for it with all these different just world experts that were at NIH that specialized in RNA and specifically translational control. So we had this super group of four professors um, that were, it was like basically every lab meeting was like having a thesis meeting. So you sort of had your time in this heavy academic environment at Hopkins, and then you sort of worked in a government research lab, I guess, at the NIH. And, and then you'd also previously interned at Procter & Gamble, mm -hmm. as well as Metamune. Uh, so, so what attracted you to industry science and were you able to gain real insight into some of the differences between industry science and academic work uh, through those experiences, either working at the NIH or working and uh, in your internship with those two companies? One of the main reasons I ended up in industry and I, I felt like it was the most interesting to me because, and I kind of ultimately ended up in the group I dreamt of ending up in because we have infinitely, if, effectively infinite resources, not literally, obviously. We can just do really interesting science. And as much as a publication is to be applauded, in our case, it's a publication and you know a product that I personally contributed to was injected into many, many millions of people. And that's a feeling that I still can't fully wrap my mind around. And, you know, it, and it's working on making that product that you kind of always dream of. And it's like, oh my gosh, it actually happened. And I was able to 
do something really cool with the science that I learned in school, you know? And I was always kind of hoping that that would happen. And oh my gosh, it did, you know? Um, so that's kind of the dream to like make, apply all this knowledge. And in the process, by the way, the group I'm in publishes uh, in some fancy journals, I might add, I, 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 which I personally have not, because I'm new in this group, but they've published in some fancy journals. So I'm hoping I can get, you know, be a part of that too one day. And then as far as how does one compare industry and academia and government, um, I think the one main difference is priority. What is the priority? Where in, 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 you know, in academia, it's, it's your training, some students, some people are very, very new and you're just like, what are you doing? Some people have, are one of the world experts on the subject and everything in between. But at the end of the day, you're in academia, you're much more constrained, I would say, unless you're one of those gigantic labs, I would say you're much more constrained with resources, right? Whereas take that, right, let's put a pin in that and compare this to, let's say, industry and I'm like, oh, geez, you know, is this statistically significant? I don't know what I, you know, am I, am I, am I, is this, is this noise? Is this garbage? Is my data real? Well, gee, we have an entire department of PhDs who got their, you know, who got their degree and non-PhDs too, who got their degrees looking at, well, something like this. And I can basically be much more certain that the help that I'm getting is, from a you know an absolute expert. Um, similarly, you know, gee, it'd be nice if I had a machine to do this to help me out. Well, we can do that. We can we can build that. Or, or you know, I need to do mass spec on this massive amount of samples to do proteomics. Well, we have an entire mass spec team, and so on and so forth. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then the NIH was kind of an in between, where there's definitely a very train, a very kind of. You know, it's an academic environment for sure. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of these institutes and resources that I found while I was there. So NIH was about halfway in my experience with a slight lean towards industry, maybe. Yeah, and some of the just hurdles you have to go through as a traditional academic tends to be removed right at the NIH. Exactly. So a lot of your expertise um, and work up to this point involves next generation sequencing technologies or NGS for short. Um, and since the technique only came around a couple of decades ago, there's just been this tremendous growth in applications, not only for obviously sequencing DNA and human genome project, but now you know pioneering RNA sequencing. Uh, but just to backtrack a sec, for anyone who's not familiar, can you briefly introduce us to NGS and next gen sequencing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I have to be kind of honest with you that in grad school, I never did any NGS. I did my first ever sequencing experiment as a postdoc. So I'm, you know, so I was a RNA biochemist through and through with, you know, doing some some biophysics in between um, and enzyme kinetics. Uh, and basically, it's different ways of how you can ligate RNA to DNA and vice versa, how you can do PCR and how you do, can do reverse transcription. Basically, sequencing prep is a combination of something you did to an RNA to look at some particular enrichment, reverse transcribing it into DNA, ligating some adapters or in reverse order, and then amplifying it. So, and basically what 
there's a couple of technologies. And then the reason I'm saying this is because I was like, oh, what am I during my postdoc? I was like, oh, I don't know if I can do NGS. Like, Are you a biochemist? Uh-huh. Can you do PCR? Yep. You, you can you can start on sequencing. You just have to read and learn a little bit and adjust. So um basically probably the the company that's one of the biggest players is Illumina. Maybe you've heard of them. Um and the way that it works is basically you have a chip where you effectively do something resembling PCR on a chip with fluorescent dyes where you incorporate dyes one at a time. But you have like just vast numbers of clusters where one base at a time is incorporated um, and imaged. And you basically take, you have this really nice camera in this instrument. I mean, I'm way oversimplifying, obviously. And frankly, some of it is a black box to me. Uh, but you're basically taking images of these chips where you're imaging the different clusters that are lighting up based on what the sequence is. And it's, you know, or, and thus that you do massively parallel sequencing because as you're building up the sequence that you're trying to read using one base at a time and the bases are lighting up corresponding to what base is being incorporated. So that's, you know, that's, you know, NGS uh, roughly. Very, very, that's a very, very quick and probably not a very, not a very thorough introduction to NGS, but the other uh, technology that I'm also really excited about is Nanopore and PacBio, which you may have heard about, um, but basically, and I've, some people even call them third generation sequencing, which I'm sure one loves that. Uh, so basically, in those cases, the one that I've been playing around with on and off, basically you have some kind of a membrane and a pore, and basically you take an RNA or a DNA molecule and you drag it through the spore. My understanding is you monitor alterations in voltage based on what bases are going through the pore and the profile of how the voltage changed informs you on what sequence passed through the pore, which is, I think, a really cool technology. So in PacBio, you know, I'm probably the least qualified to talk about PacBio, um, but basically it, it also can do very long reads and um, one of the strengths there is that you re you sequence the same region many times, so you're that much more confident that the sequence you're getting is correct. So, sort of a continuation to that, um, in talking about more, you know, third generation or, or the future of NGS. How do you think NGS will allow us to understand or learn about features beyond just the primary sequence of a DNA or RNA molecule? and maybe help us learn a little bit more, uh, especially for your expertise about um, RNA biochemistry. Sure. So I think, in my opinion, one of the, and, and it's already well underway, what, 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 what Illumina sequencing is starting to become much more is not just, oh, give me the sequence, but rather give me the relative amount of a very specific thing. So, you know, I just attended the RNA Society meeting and people are doing so many interesting things to look at RNA modifications, DNA modifications, how might things change expression, you know, you know, the, the, edit, the, the, the editing field, you know, CRISPR, there are people who are doing all these CRISPR experiments at RNA Society where it's, it's, it's just a really great way to kind of look at what's going on 
with nucleic acids in a cell in general. With people's creativity to what you can look at, combined with the power that you can effectively get single base resolution on whatever you can dream up to look at is extremely powerful. And then um, the quantification, the relative quantification is getting better and better and better. So not only so to have a tool where that that can tell you a single base resolution with pretty good relative accuracy, and now with better and better throughput and you know generally better reagents. I mean, sky's the limit, really, to really understand how things are working together in a cell. And, you know, because in the 90s, let's say, or when I, let's just say pre-sequencing, a lot of the work was, well, you make an RNA, you transcribe it, you run it through a gel, and you study your one RNA, right? That, that, was, that was kind of the world that I was, that's the world that I lived in. And now with sequencing, it's like, it's limitless possibilities. So getting more into the analytical portion, NGS requires, and the analysis specifically requires unique computational skill sets. So a lot of programming languages are um, predominantly, and it's kind of incredible, all the different open source kind of packages that you can get from different groups. But I was wondering, you know, in order to do that analysis, how do you, uh, how did you develop those skills and kind of as a scientist position in industry, how in demand are those analytical skills specifically for sequencing um, when you're thinking about hiring decisions? Um, so how did, how did I learn? Uh, just being really stubborn, basically, because I, 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 think, I think step one is you need to be, you need to have an interest. If you, you say, oh, I want to learn how to code and do NGS analysis because because it seems like the thing to learn, you're going to be miserable, in my opinion. You need to have at least a mild interest on the subject. In the subject, um, I learned because I've always had an interest, but never quite had the opportunity. The, and my project was never quite going. The projects I worked on never quite required it. Um, maybe if I stayed for more years in grad school, that would have been the next thing. But basically. I took a I took a class that was offered at least when I was in Hopkins. Um, it was offered through the NIH. It was basically like introduction to Python. It was just basics, basics. I I took that class and and then I I took I had some really good mentors um, when I when I was at NEB. I learned a little bit more there. And then I came to Moderna and. Uh, my first boss that I had here, we we needed the, we needed someone who could do that, and the fact that I knew more than zero kind of gave me a way to an opportunity to learn even more and learn even more. And I still um, would not call myself, you know, a Python programmer, but I know more than I did before, and at this point, I feel like it's enough to get by, and. As, as I do more and more projects, you learn more and more and more. But the big thing there is you have to be proactive and it's a lot of Googling. I feel like 90% of what I know is basically me needing to do something and me just Googling it at odd hours of the day. And ultimately like going to websites like Stack Overflow or Wikipedia or what have you and just seeing what other people did. And, but but the thing is, it's 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 
it's very much like learning a new language because I, it, it, it's the weirdest thing because I actually came to the U S when I was a child and it's, 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 it's kind of similar to what I was learning English. Yeah. I mean, and it gets so much harder as an adult too. And not only in terms of plasticity and. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so maybe what we can get at is children before the age of 10 should learn how to program in Python. Yeah, I wish I there's there's a business there's a business opportunity somewhere in there. Oh, in terms of um, skill sets and hiring decisions, kind of people to join your team, especially because now you are working, like you said, you know, kind of excited about Manipur and working on these technologies. How important is that analysis skill set? I think it would help, but it's not it's not. Like it's not gonna make or break someone's resume because if if you have some skills that align with what we're looking for and you are a smart and driven person and you know you're a self-starter, you're you can kind of show that you're interested in what we do here, that that you would be willing that you know that you don't need your hand held every single step of the way, which is not to be confused with needing mentorship right everybody needs mentorship but as long as you don't need your hand held every step of the way and if you're interested in learning a little bit of coding you can just learn on the job honestly that's how most people did and the good news is not everybody enjoys it so if someone does a lot of times management's like oh yeah okay okay we got a good we got one so okay go ahead please learn you know when we do the Boston biotech thing, we sort of have a theme that we go off of um, to help, you know, early career scientists in particular sort of think about their own career decisions and navigating that. So for this month, um, what we're talking about, obviously, is, you know, industry postdocs and industry scientist roles. Um, but we wanted to ask you a bit um, about what resources you use to find your position at New England Biolabs following your PhD. Yeah. Uh, so every single job I've ever gotten after grad school was through someone I met at a conference. And I had that realization only not too long ago. Uh, but yeah, so I basically met my postdoctoral advisor. Um, I guess let me back up. I mean, I went to basically every networking, making the transition panel, workshop, you name it. I was just, I was there. Um, and I tried just so hard to kind of set myself up to go to industry and, you know, what, what didn't I do? And I would say, or I guess in my, in my opinion, what didn't I do? I had to try to do that. Um, but at the end of the day, I think these things all prepared me, but ultimately both my postdoctoral advisor and the person that I originally worked for when I got into Moderna, I met at conferences. So there's something to be said for that. Maybe it's a coincidence, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, but basically, I was applying for different jobs and postdocs. I was pretty set on going the industry route for a very long time by the time I was graduating. So I was applying and applying, and I had a job that almost worked out, but didn't. But then, but then the other thing I had going was looking at industry, specifically industry postdocs. So I spoke with some people about what you know, what are good industry postdocs, right? And uh, and basically, I saw, hey, NEB had a postdoc open in the RNA division. I was like, okay, I could I could do this. I mean, 
position number three in my training that will be RNA centric. Okay, I guess we can do this. Uh, so then I applied and then I met someone from NEB. So this was 27, this is spring of 2017. In 2015, at our 20th meeting of RNA Society, the 21st or something like that, it was in 2015, I met uh, some people from NEB at RNA Society. And I, you know, I, I stayed in touch just very, very briefly stayed in touch. Nothing, nothing crazy. Uh, and I was like, Hey, you know, I, I, I just applied to this RNA position. Uh, do you know whose lab this might in? Kind of, you know, hook me up basically, right. Help me out, hook me up. Uh, and, and the person was like, Oh, well, you know what? That's actually in my lab. Why don't you just send me your, your materials? And next thing I knew I interviewed and got the offer and I was moving up to Boston and in a similar fashion, uh, while I was postdocing, I met my uh, my first boss at Moderna uh, at a conference and gave him my business card. And which, by the way, uh, random aside, I strongly encourage grad students and postdocs to, to make business cards. You can make them very cheaply uh, through just Google, right? Just Google it, say, make me business cards. And you'll find websites that can make you a bunch for $10. Anyway, so I gave him my business card, and this was around May. And in August, he emailed me and was like, hey, I have an opening. You should come work at Moderna. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Um, so I finished things up at NEB, and December 3rd, 2018, I started at Moderna. That's a, a really nice story, and I think it um, is probably comforting to a lot of our listeners to know that uh, those conferences and the people that you meet uh, actually can make a difference because you're sort of surrounded by um, all of these experts who have common interests with you. Um, yeah. So so normally in an academic postdoc, you have an advisor and a specific project that you lead, and maybe you're expected to meet some sort of publication requirement. And I'm guessing the goal of an industry postdoc uh, may be similar in some ways, but but also is likely different. Uh, given that the goal is to produce something useful for your organization. So what kind of work were you actually doing in the industry postdoc and were you expected to publish? Uh, and what, what were you doing compared to what maybe you would have been doing in an academic postdoc? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And I think, you know, I was very pleasantly surprised because it was very, and, and, and that's kind of the homework for someone to do about the industry postdoc, if that's the route you want to take, because postdocs are very different. But I mean, here's a, I'll give a plug for NEB. It was a wonderful place to postdoc. And I had a fantastic time there. And it is extremely academic. Um, I mean, it's it's effectively academia. If, if you... If you end up in one of the research labs there, it's it's effectively academia. They they publish papers. They publish a lot of papers, good papers and good journals. Um, they go to conferences. They they host. There's a weekly or almost weekly seminar where they'll host an academic, often not not always, but often an academic professor. So it was very very academic, and I like that. Um, but at the same time, it was kind of still an industry, not kind of, it was definitely an industry setting where you couldn't just go and study something completely random. It had to be 
an interesting research problem that was academic enough that you could publish it, yet somehow relevant to the overall goals of the organization and the group that I joined. Um, they studied different CRISPR Cas9 systems, among, just different CRISPR systems in general, not only Cas9 actually. And um, basically, my boss said, and this is this was very challenging, but I'm really grateful for it because I think that was kind of like a second. It felt like a second growth spurred for me as a scientist, maybe, uh, because he said, find an interesting problem and let's talk about it how you, and talk about how you can solve it. We're just like, oh my God. You know, <laughs> that's, that's, you know like, right? That's uh, because they had some ideas. They, they had some ideas. They, they, they gave me, you know, they didn't let me completely. And the lab was great, but at the end of the day, you're a PhD scientist. It's time to establish you the brand of polyuric science. Find an interesting problem. I'll help you to kind of curate the question, and you're going to solve it. So, right. Oh, and then the other caveat is again, it had to be related to something that anybody would care about. But then again, in an academic lab, you know, if you're in a lab that studies RNA biochemistry, and you're like, you know what? I'm going to go and make some new resins to purify protein. Like the PIs are like, no, like we don't know, you know? Yeah. You know? I think what you just, you said something really interesting too about like establishing the brand of your own science, which yes. I'm sure people listening like might, these things seem like they would be completely counterintuitive and never go together. But, you know, essentially it, it is recognizing that like you provide a certain set of valuable resources, no matter where you're going to go, training, expertise, personality as well. And, you know, kind of owning that and claiming that and showing that to people yeah. when you're thinking about interviewing and like where you would want to work yeah. later. And I'll, I'll tell you right now, it's, it's terrifying, right? Cause you're, you're kind of, you know, you have, you have a small raft, but you're you're in the deep end, right? You're you're uh, it's scary, right? Because you're a PhD scientist, and as a postdoc, you say, like, okay, well, you have a degree. You wow. know, what you're doing. yeah. <laughs> well, allegedly, the important yeah. the important the allegedly know what you're doing, right? So, and that's the um, kind of the you left the the nest, right? If you will, you left the graduate lab. It's like, okay, well, as a PhD, you're supposed to be able to think critically. You're supposed to, you know, it's a lot of times you won't study the exact same problem that you studied in grad, in grad school. But what you will have attained is how to quickly familiarize yourself with a new field or new problem, how to think critically about data, how to, you know, poke holes in your own, in your own theories, right? That, that's what I meant by my establishing your brand. Yeah. And, and I think that sort of leads us um, into our last question here. Um, you talked a lot about the, the way that this industry postdoc sort of elevated your science and, and clearly uh, it, it mattered because you're doing really super important work now. What advantages generally do you think an industry postdoc might confer to someone as opposed to going directly into an industry role without doing a postdoc? <laughs> So one thing for sure that 
and this is kind of the low-hanging fruit answer. Uh, I learned a whole another new skill set because I have never studied CRISPR before, right? And I, I, I learned, you know, I learned, you know, I was there for only a year and change, but I learned, you know, a decent amount about CRISPR in the time that I was there. Um, the other thing is, is it's it's a nice bridge if you do if you again the, the, the assumption here is that you're going to industry. Right. Because if you go and you do an industry postdoc and then and then you pivot and you decide, oh, I want to go to academia, it's not impossible, but you've you've you have some ground to make up because you were kind of developing yourself in a different direction slightly. Um, but being in that industry postdoc, it it helps you to it's a nice transition. It's it's a it, because an industry postdoc by default is never going to be very long. So you kind of learn to have a, more, a lot more meetings than you would have in grad school. You learn to be in a corporate environment. You learn to understand different functions of the company. You learn to you learn to learn about resources that are available to you that before may not have been available, and how to kind of synthesize all of that together and push forward the science. If could you do a, a go academia directly to, you know, from PhD straight into um, an industry position. Yeah, you bet. Um, but, you know, I had a fantastic time during my postdoc. I was very happy there. And I learned a whole another, you know, set of skills. And I could, and, you know, I know, I know about another field, a lot more about another field that I wouldn't have known about if I didn't do this postdoc. And, now that you know Jennifer Dowden and her colleagues got Nobel prizes, you know everyone knows about CRISPR, right? So maybe one day I can use that too. I, like I wouldn't have had I wouldn't I wouldn't have had that if I didn't do the posting. Right. Yeah, I like too how uh, you were sort of just posed a really general problem um, or asked to solve a problem that you could come up with yourself. And I think if you went straight into industry as a scientist, they they would probably never do that. They would give you something specific to work on and say, this is what you're doing. Um, but, but I think it was really nice that in a corporate setting, you, you got to sort of tackle a, a big problem like that and, and get used to that type of work. The other way to put it is, I read, a, I don't remember where I read this, but it really stuck with me. Because I read one of those like self-help books on how to do well in grad school as I was beginning grad school. And something that stuck out to me, and I, I apologize to whoever it is that whoever it is that I'm quoting, I apologize, I don't remember. Um, but the quote goes something like grad school is a safe place to make mistakes. <laughs> um, so I would say an industry postdoc is a safe place to be an adult scientist. If that adult being in quotes, but you, you understand. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful way to kind of close out. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today, you know, talking about your experiences, your love for RNA, and as well as your career at Moderna. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Jenna Glatzer. And I'm Joe Varelli. Thank you for listening.